Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we're joined by Sharon Griwa, William & Mary, also of Harvard Kennedy School's Middle East Initiative this year, and author of the brand new book, Soldiers of Democracy, Military Legacies in the Arab Spring, published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Sharon, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, so it's, it's great to see this book out. It's timely uh, where, where we are now, uh, you know, 10 years after the military coup in Egypt, uh, a couple of years after what happened in Tunisia with Kais Said, and you've been working on this book about militaries and politics. Tell us a little bit about it. How did you get there? What made you want to write this book? Yeah, you know, I didn't intend to write this book. I didn't plan to write about the military. I actually, I had been inspired by the Arab Spring, inspired by this push for democratization. And when I started the PhD, it was 2013, 2014. Curious, therefore, about why Tunisia seemed to be uh, succeeding, becoming the success story, while Egypt had, had quickly failed into a military coup. And so I was curious about that puzzle and what was different about Tunisia. But I hadn't actually started by thinking it was the military. My initial hypothesis going in uh, was that it was about the Islamists in the two countries, that Anatha was just more moderate, more inclusive, more willing to compromise. But once I finally went to Tunisia in 2014 and, and every year since and, and started doing interviews, I noticed that the same mistrust, even hate for Anatha remained in Tunisia, despite it being more moderate, more willing to compromise. And that in 2013, you had the same moment for a coup. Uh, you had mass protests calling for the fall of the Anatha-led government. You even had uh, opposition leaders meet with military generals asking them to intervene. And so I, what I realized in those initial trips was that the military was the more important factor. The opportunity for a coup was there in both countries, and it was only because the military didn't intervene in Tunisia in 2013 that there was the opportunity for a national dialogue and for civil society to start to mediate, that the more important factor, I felt, uh, was the role of the military. And I wasn't also satisfied with the existing explanation out there that the Tunisian military is just apolitical and professional, and Egypt's military is just politicized. I felt like there was a little bit more to the story. And so when I finally started to interview some of the retired officers in Tunisia, I realized that while professionalism was an important component of it, there were also some additional elements uh, to why they behaved the way they did during the revolution and transition. And so the, the focus of the book became to explain military behavior, why Egypt and Tunisia's militaries responded to the revolution the way they did, why they responded to the transition the way they did, uh, and why uh, ultimately in Tunisia they closed uh, the parliament as well in 2021. So before we get to Egypt and Tunisia specifically, one of the things you do in the book is you ground this within kind of a full scale uh, analysis of militaries and politics and try and like really do a global cross national study of how militaries behave. You survey the literature. Tell us a little bit about what you did and um, how that led you to the kinds of arguments you make in the book. Yeah. And so I wanted the book to be more than just Egypt and Tunisia. I wanted to see if there was something about my argument in those two countries that might also generalize uh, globally as well. And so I was reading the literature on civil military relations, on how dictators deal with their militaries, how militaries then respond to revolutions. And I felt like there was a missing piece here, which is that 
we normally think that dictators coup-proof their militaries, and that means that they employ all these different range of tactics. You counterbalance, uh, you divide and rule, you buy off some of the officers, and we kind of think that you coup-proof or you don't. Um, but what I was trying to show is that Egypt and Tunisia represented two different strategies of coup-proofing. In Tunisia, you have what we, I think, traditionally think of as coup-proofing, which is you marginalize the military, you build up instead National Guard, Presidential Guard, the police, and you keep the military too weak to mm -hmm. stage a coup, unable to uh, overpower these counterbalancing forces. But in Egypt, it was an, another strategy, which we can also consider coup-proofing, which was to keep the military satisfied to give the military everything that it wanted, to give them a large budget and high salaries, to give them political influence, positions across the government, ministers, governors, ambassadors, to grant the military a role in the economy. And all of that served to coup-proof the military, to keep it satisfied with its position, that it was already the center of power under Abdel Nasser, Anwar Sadat, Hosni Mubarak, such that it didn't see any interest in ousting them. You've, got, so, that great, you've got that great quote from Al-Ghazala where he's basically like, why would I do that? I'm happy. <laughs> Precisely, which originally came from Hazem Kandil's book, which is one mm -hmm. uh, that I drew upon so, so much during the, the course of the research. And so these two strategies, I felt, were two ways that dictators can coup-proof. And the theory that I started to develop was that these two strategies create two different types of militaries that are going to react very differently to democratization. If the military has been at the center of the regime, if they had been empowered by the dictator, enjoying power and wealth, they're going to lose that under democratization. Under democracy, it's going to be civilians in charge, no longer military officers as president, as defense minister, uh, having veto power over security policy. It's going to encroach on their political power, on their material power as well. Newly elected governments are going to be accountable to their electorate. They may have to redistribute some of the excess military budget to uh, their supporters. They might try to have transparency over the military economy. And so empowered militaries are set to lose under democratization. And that's going to make democratization more difficult. So what I argue is that if you have empowered the military, uh, like in Egypt, but also like in Turkey historically, Pakistan, uh, Nigeria, Sudan, et cetera, et cetera, these empowered militaries make democratization more difficult, more likely to repress uprisings. And if that fails, more likely to stage coups during democratic transitions. Now, By contrast... Well, as you say, yeah. you've got the really nice, you summarize it really nicely in the book, I thought, where you basically break it down and say some of these militaries have the will, but not the capacity, and the other type has the capacity, but not the will. Precisely. And so empowered militaries under dictatorship have, they're strong enough to stage a coup, mm -hmm. but they don't have the interest, they don't have the will. But the marginalized militaries have the will to stage a coup, but don't have the capacity to do so. And so those marginalized militaries are gonna respond very differently to democratization. They had been neglected, uh, resentful of the dictator. And so when 
democratization emerges, they're more likely to side with the people and not this dictator that marginalized them. Subsequently, during the transition, I argue that they're actually likely to gain from the transition because they had been so neglected, underfunded, counterbalanced under dictatorship. They're actually going to see their budgets increase. They're actually going to see even their political influence increase. They're going to have representation in a security council where they can give their advice in a way that Prior to dictatorship, they had been completely neglected also from politics. And so I argue then that democratization is easier when you have this, in, this marginalized military that you're inheriting. But I also argue that these marginalized militaries come with some risks of their own. That is, they're more likely, I argue, to go along with an incumbent takeover when the president asks them, for instance, to close the parliament like they did in Tunisia, I argue that their marginalization makes them more likely to go along with that. Uh, and we can get into that in a minute. Um, and a second risk of marginalized militaries is that they're more likely to fall to civil war. They're not as strong to overpower the rebels. Uh, they probably had divide and rule internally to keep them marginalized, and that might also splinter. And so although democratization is easier with marginalized militaries, it also comes with these heightened risks of incumbent takeovers and civil wars. And so I show in a cross-national large-end analysis uh, globally that that's what happens. These empowered militaries make democratization more difficult, more likely to repress, more likely to stage coups, whereas marginalized militaries are easier to democratize with, but come with these heightened risks as well. Now, one of the things you point out, I think quite nicely, is that it's not just um, a matter of choice, right? I mean, dictators do choose how to design their militaries, but you, you identify certain factors that make them more likely to go in one direction rather than the other. Yeah, and it's perhaps counterintuitive that you often have even military officers decide to marginalize the military rather than empower it. Uh, and so I argue that it doesn't quite fit into regime types, whether it's a military party or personalist regime, which is the way that comparativists currently bring in the military, which is in, in terms of democratization, which is that military regimes are the ones that are difficult to democratize with. But I argue that it's more than just, you know, is the president a military officer or is there a military junta at the top? That it's more so about how you treat the military. And so how you treat it, why they treat the military the way they do is something I explore uh, in both the theory and, and the cross-national chapter. And I argue that it comes down to a number of different factors. Uh, one is threat perceptions. Right. If you need the military also to counter external threats, or you need them also to counter internal threats, you might be more likely to empower the military. That's going to be your strategy for keeping the military controlled, but also useful for countering mm -hmm. threats. Uh, but that that alone was not determinative either. You have plenty of militaries uh, that need to fight off external and internal threats and yet still are marginalized and counterbalanced. Tunisia to some degree in that they had had security threats from France initially, from Libya and Algeria later, uh, from internal uh, Salah bin Yusuf and his supporters at the start. You had uh, security threats and yet 
Bourguiba chose to marginalize the military. And you could also say Saddam Hussein had major security threats and yet chose uh, to counterbalance and marginalize the military, privileging the Republican Guard and Special Republican Guard instead. And so security threats weren't determinative either. And so I also felt personal preferences of the dictator matter, how he chooses to respond to those security threats. Uh, as well as some colonial legacies. Right. Even when it's the first dictator upon coming to power, when you think they have a relatively blank slate to decide which one to pursue, there are these legacies as well in terms of whether uh, independence was achieved through a war of independence, which is going to give the military legitimacy and make them harder, therefore, to marginalize. Uh, or are you inheriting a military from the colonial power? Did the colonial power build up an officer corps that you then inherit to become your military upon independence? That's also going to make marginalizing it much more difficult. And so what I argue is that all of these factors come into play in determining, do you marginalize or empower the military upon independence? Your personal preferences, your security threats, these colonial legacies, they all shape this decision. But once you've made the decision, it creates vested interests in its maintenance, that it becomes path dependent once it's chosen at independence. Once you've empowered the military, it's hard to put that genie back in the bottle. It's hard to then marginalize them later on. And once you've marginalized the military, you've created vested interests in other apparatuses, in the police that is counterbalancing them, in the party that is counterbalancing them, that those forces are also going to resist you trying to change the marginalization later on. And so once you choose the strategy, it remains relatively path dependent, short, of course, of any critical junctures and other major shocks to the system. And one of the things you point out, and again, I think we, we kind of know this, but the numbers you put out there are pretty, pretty stark, that, you know, military coups really are one of the most common ways that leaders, you know, in 20th century onward um, have been ousted compared to, you know, democratization or external war. So this focus on coup proofing then becomes a key part of, of survival strategy. It's not something which seems to be kind of hypothetical or optional. <laughs> look at the history of the Cold War, look at the history of of the region. And you can see why there's so much emphasis on coup proofing. But you really then you go in and you try and talk, as you mentioned before, about there's this whole menu of ways one might go about coup proofing. But it's not really just a menu the way you describe it. There's logics of how you go about doing it. Walk us through that a little bit. And what are the choices that the, that the dictator is facing as he, well, I guess it's always he, um, is like trying to figure out how to coup proof. Mm -hmm. So the choices they have to make immediately are what budget am I going to give the military and what political power am I going to give the military? What ministerial positions, for instance, those are the immediate decisions. And what I argue is that your choice there shapes the additional coup proofing tactics that you can do onto the military. If you've chosen to give them a large budget uh, you probably also are going to be giving them a large share of political power because now you've made them strong and they're able to negotiate for a larger role in politics as well. And so I show that those two, first of all, go together. Strong militaries tend to be strong in terms of material power, but also in terms of political power. Then 
The next decision you might want to make is, do I build up counterbalancing forces to the military? Uh, do I build up the National Guard, Presidential Guard, police, et cetera, to try to cage in the military? That's going to be very difficult if you've decided to empower the military. They're going to resist you building up a counterbalancing force that's taking away the budget and, and power that they think they should have. And so counterbalancing, I find, is a tactic that's more common with marginalizing the military as opposed to empowering it. And then you have additional coup proofing tactics in the menu, uh, such as stacking. Do you put your in-group into the officer corps? Uh, do you pursue the Bashar al-Assad route and Hafez al-Assad route before him of stacking the military with Alawis, with the you know, his ethnic minority? Uh, and that strategy, I find, is also easier when you've empowered the military. If the military is enjoying power and wealth, it's easier for you to attract your in-group into the military's ranks. If you've marginalized the military by contrast, it's difficult to get your supporters to join uh, a military that has low salaries, no political influence. And so I show, for instance, in Tunisia, that Bourguiba wanted to stack the military with his supporters, the elite families coming from the coastal regions. And yet those families didn't find a military career attractive. And instead, he had to settle for instead uh, privileging the few elite coastal officers who did join to the top, but he couldn't stack the military fully with uh, his supporters. And so stacking as well is the strategy that is, I show is associated with empowering the military rather than marginalizing it. So what I try to do is to show that these coup proofing tactics that we currently view as a menu of interchangeable options that you could mm -hmm. pursue whenever you want actually fall into these two different logics, uh, more likely with empowerment or more likely with marginalization. But one last uh, uh, component of the theory, which I want to talk about before we get into the cases, is the kind of the big bugbear of um, of civil military relations literature, uh, professionalism, and this idea that some some are some militaries are more professional than others, less politicized than others. Tell me how you approach that in the book. Similarly, that it is shaped by the coup proofing strategy that you've chosen in the same way that if you empower the military, it has some knock on effects in terms of its composition. It's more easily that you can stack it with your elite supporters. Similarly, this choice to empower or marginalize the military has knock on effects on professionalism. The Militaries that you've empowered, that have a role in governance, that are enjoying positions as ministers, as governors, come to view that as their rightful place in politics, that that is part of their professional mission, that they should be the guardian of the state. They should have those positions as governors, as ministers. And the lower officers, the cadets that are joining the military, they're looking up to the senior ranks to see what's appropriate, what's normal in a military. And if they're seeing the senior officers are becoming ministers, becoming governors, they're going to view that as part of professionalism, that that's their professional mission is to also have this guardianship role in the state. And so empowerment, I argue, is associated with these more politicized conceptions of professionalism. While by contrast, if you've marginalized the military, if you've kept them out of politics, 
they're more likely to view that as normal, as desirable, as professional, that they should be out of politics. And that likewise has these socialization effects in the younger cadets as they're starting to join to think this is the normal route for a military. And so professional, while both of these militaries might actually consider themselves professional, and I think that's important, even Egypt's military, views itself as professional, uh, what they mean by professional is very different in terms of whether it allows for this political role, this guardianship role, or whether it discourages uh, that sort of involvement in politics and governance. Great. So that gives, I think, a nice frame for for your, uh, your focused uh, two-case comparison. Um, and you started off uh, when you introduced the book, you, you, you explained, you know, why you came to Egypt and Tunisia, kind of a lot of people in our field did, you know, kind of the, that comparison is just kind of like there for the taking. Um, tell us a little bit about how you went about um, studying this uh, kind of your, your, the data you drew on uh, methods, uh, you know, what, you know, what, what did you actually do? What did you find, which allowed you to make these novel arguments about uh, the role of the military? So once I started to think it was the military that was the major uh, factor in these two cases, uh, as opposed to the Islamists or the secularists or the civil society, I had started there in terms of interviewing the political parties and civil society. But then once I realized the military was more important, I needed to make inroads there as well. And so I, I began in Tunisia by trying to find the retired officers First, those who were involved in the media, involved in civil society organizations themselves, post-revolution Tunisian officers, retired officers began to establish retired officers associations, began to establish some think tanks uh, to comment on security issues. And so I started there in terms of finding retired officers. And from there, it snowballed into finding additional officers. Uh, they were quite receptive, actually, to introducing me to others. It was at a time, I think, I was I got there at the right time in terms of 2014, 2015. The Tunisian military wanted to tell its story of how, uh, why Tunisia became the success story, why they didn't stay right. in Jakku. Uh, and so it they were very open in a way that maybe now some interview fatigue might have set in. Uh, but at the time, they were willing to, to, to refer me to others. And so I was able to interview uh, almost 60 Tunisian retired officers and build trust with them over months of interviews. And that ultimately opened up another avenue uh, for the research, which was to do a survey of the Retired Officers Association in Tunisia. After a year of building up trust with uh, the, uh, the leaders of this Retired Officers Association, they let me do a survey of their members as well. They emailed it out. Uh, they had uh, physical copies of the, of the survey at the association. And so that allowed me to do the first uh, survey of the military as well of roughly 70 or so uh, retired officers in Tunisia. But I couldn't do something similar in Egypt. It had right. become too dangerous by the time I started my PhD 2013-2014 to try to do interviews with uh, the retired military in Egypt, and more importantly, to try to do a similar survey of retired officers uh, in Egypt. And so I... By the, the middle and, and towards the end of the PhD, I tried to think of a more creative way that maybe we could also survey some Egyptian military personnel. And the way I decided to go about it was to try to leverage Facebook. 
to try to buy advertisements on Facebook that would advertise a survey, uh, uh, a methodology that's become quite commonplace in political science for recruiting convenience samples of the population. You can buy relatively cheap ads on Facebook that advertise a survey. But what I tried to do was to target the ads that you, when you buy an ad on Facebook to, to advertise a survey, you can specify what country you want to survey, what gender, uh, what age, uh, but you can also specify what interests you're hoping to, to oversample. And so you can specify that they're interested in the military or that they have a career in the military, that they list the Ministry of Defense as their, as their employer. And these sorts of Targeting allows you to oversample the number of soldiers, for instance, that are going to see uh, the, the advertisement or the number of uh, ex-conscripts that have now become civilians but have military experience that are going to see the advertisement. And so what I did in both Egypt and Tunisia was this uh, Facebook ad route as well to try to survey uh, both countries' militaries or ex-soldiers. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and that's what I was able to do. And I put these three surveys then uh, into the final chapter of the book, uh, while the bulk of the book, of course, still relies on the qualitative interviews uh, and the evidence that I find uh, on the ground in Egypt and Tunisia. One one thing which was really interesting, I thought, was uh, you got your hands on kind of the the register of the biographies of of the uh, members of the uh, retired uh, Tunisian that right. This was like the retired Tunisian officers uh, roster, right? Exactly. Everyone you, who had you retired. Did some really that interesting work with that. Yeah, and that was actually a critical piece of the puzzle where the, the head of the Retired Officers Association let me view uh, this register of everyone who has retired, all the senior officers who had retired by 2009. And that allowed me to look at where are these officers coming from? And it allowed me to put this piece together that although most officers come from the interior regions, especially at the lower ranks, Bourguiba and Ben Ali because they came from the coast and trusted the elite families coming from the coast, meddled in promotions at the very top to make sure that the top generals tended to come from Tunis and the Sahel, the coastal regions, the well-off coastal regions that they trusted more, believed would be more loyal to them than the officers coming from the more neglected internal regions of the country. And so this discrimination in promotions that I found in that uh, in that data set of, of retired officers, um, I also then started to hear in my interviews as well that there was this resentment towards uh, the coastal officers, Rashid Ahmad among others, that had been perhaps put there not so much based on merit, according to these lower officers, mm -hmm. and instead based on his coastal affiliation. Uh, and so that was an additional part of the puzzle, I think, of why the Tunisian military behaved the way it did. It was an additional way that they resented Ben Ali, not just for marginalizing the military materially and politically, but also this regional discrimination that they also faced within uh, the military. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back to talk about the cases of Egypt and Tunisia.
Welcome back to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. We're speaking with Sharon Grewell about his book, Soldiers of Democracy. And uh, now let's talk about uh, your cases. Uh, you have Egypt, you have Tunisia, two of the, you know, the premier cases uh, of the Arab Spring transitions. Uh, why don't we start with Egypt, since that, that's what you do in your book, um, and kind of walk us through what did we learn um, about the evolution of the military in Egypt and the role that it played in, I mean, we can start with the revolution and then we can go to the coup. Absolutely. So what we had in Egypt uh, was a military and an officer corps in particular that had been powerful in the sense of material and political power that had been politicized to believe that that's the role it deserves to play in governance. And that in terms of its composition had been stacked with relatively secular elite families, uh, the, you know, the, the top uh, class in, in Egypt and the supporters of uh, the dictators historically. And so that military, powerful, politicized, stacked with the elite, made democratization more difficult. When the Arab Spring erupted, when the protest emerged, the military was wary of democratization. It's not the case that they had resented Mubarak and were eager to abandon him. They tried even to repress the revolution, even after their pledge publicly that we're not going to use force against protesters, they actually did. If you look at the Human Rights Watch uh, reports, they were arresting, they were detaining, they were torturing, even killing protesters throughout the 18 days, even after the pledge not to use force. They were trying in that sense to save Mubarak and the regime as best they could. But what's important was that they couldn't do more than that. They couldn't massacre the protesters in 2011 in a way that they could later on in 2013. They couldn't because at that stage, the protests were cross-cutting, Islamist and secularist. Everyone was out in the streets. And that made repression uh, in terms of large-scale uh, high-level repression very difficult. The soldiers that the officer corps would need to rely on to actually repress are conscripts. They are everyday ordinary Egyptians in the way that the officers are not. They, as ordinary conscripts, likely identify with demands of the people, likely have brothers and sisters protesting. And those brothers and sisters were also very smart to fraternize with the soldiers whenever they saw them hugging and cheering them, uh, chanting that the army and the people are one hand. That made repression far more difficult. And added to that, you had U.S. pressure on the Egyptian military not to fire on the protesters, that that might lead to a suspension of aid at the time, very consistent and strong U.S. pressure uh, on them. And so that constrained what the Egyptian military could do. Although it didn't want democratization and it tried to repress in terms of out of the light, low-level repression, it couldn't engage in a massacre of the protesters. And so eventually it had to jettison Mubarak in order to try to save its position in the regime. Uh, it had to get rid of Mubarak and instead try to govern the transition itself. And so not only does it abandon Mubarak, but it seizes power uh, in the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, directly running uh, the transition moving forward. Can we take a step back, uh, just uh, uh, kind of pre-revolution, because uh, you talk quite a bit in, in the book in one of the chapters 
about the way about the increasing militarization or the interconnection between the military and Mubarak's uh, NDP um, uh, over like the last decade of Mubarak's reign. And then you also take on some of the ideas that people have about Gamal Mubarak and the way that he did or didn't um, threaten the interests of the military. Walk us through that a little bit. I think it's an important part of your argument about kind of the incentives of the military in this in this time period. Yeah, so I argue that Egypt's military continued to play this empowered role throughout the Gamal Abdel Nasser, Anwar Sadat, and Hosni Mubarak. That it wasn't the case that Hosni Mubarak switched the strategy to instead neglecting them, uh, to try to civilianize uh, the government, or to try to build up the police. That I argue that those indicators that you're seeing, the civilianization of the ministers uh, or the building up of the police, is actually in service of the military. What the military wanted at the time, that after uh, the defeat in 1967, it became very difficult for the military to have that upfront role in governance. Uh, it was getting blamed. Uh, for being involved in politics, for monopolizing wealth, uh, uh, and not uh, even uh, being able to, to perform well in 67. And that led to considerable public pressure on the military to instead withdraw from the limelight in order to preserve its reputation and in turn preserve its interests. So I argue that it was actually a voluntary willing strategy of the military to try to move away from the direct praetorian governance and instead to more of an indirect uh, role in governance. And I think the, some of the key points uh, or evidence there is that even though they were behind the scenes ruling but not governing, as uh, Stephen Cook puts it, in the 2000s, you could see that they were still the dominant veto player. When you saw these more civilian ministers try to start to privatize, for instance, uh, the economy, which could have threatened the military's businesses too, the military is able to carve out its companies uh, to avoid privatization. It had veto power even over economic policy, not just security policy. And likewise, when we think about uh, Mubarak building up the police and the central security forces in particular, that, I argue, was also part of what the military wanted. They had engaged in repression uh, in, the, in the weeks after the defeat in 1967 when there were protests. And the military had engaged in repression at that time because there wasn't a militarized police force that could have done it. And that hurt their reputation even further. And so the buildup that you see of the central security forces was in the military's interest. It was a way of them to keep their hands clean of repression so that they can have a good image domestically as well as internationally to maintain uh, U.S. military aid. And so I, I didn't find persuasive the arguments that actually the military had been neglected in, under Mubadi just as it had been neglected under Ben Ali, and that's why both of these militaries defected uh, in the revolution. On, on, by contrast, you see very different behavior of these militaries in the revolution. Egypt is very hesitant, reluctant to abandon Mubarak, tries to engage in repression throughout the protests, uh, and only begrudgingly has to accept uh, his ouster due to those constraints that I had outlined earlier. Mm -hmm. Great. So then, okay, so you already talked about the revolution itself and kind of the choices they made and why they finally got rid of Mubarak. 
So now we're in the period where they're governing uh, as the SCAF. And, um, you know, talk us through the transition, the coup, and kind of what happens to the Egyptian military. So this empowered military made the transition far more difficult. By necessity, democratization was going to encroach on their privileges. You would have a civilian president. You would have civilians empowered as decision makers rather than keeping a veto power for uh, the military. Whether they and were Muslim Brotherhood or not. Exactly. Uh, the Muslim making it because it was the Muslim Brotherhood, it added some additional elements mm -hmm. in terms of Islamists in power versus this more secular military. But in terms of their corporate interests, those were going to be encroached upon no matter who became uh, the uh, the president. And so you see the military play this active role to prevent encroachments onto their turf that they not only govern the transition from the start, they then try to divide and rule the parties so that they're not able to form a united front against the military. Then you see them, in essence, neuter the parliament and the president even before they take office. They say that the, anything the parliament passes is going to have to be approved by the SCAF anyway. They have a veto over any law they pass. You see them try to strip the president of his role as commander in chief, that any security decision has to get approved by the SCAF. And so in essence, trying to carve out the SCAF's privileges even prior to any elected uh, official taking office. And so when Morsi, uh, the elected president, finally takes office, he has this difficult negotiation to do with the military over what privileges they're going to preserve under democracy. And I, what I think observers get wrong about Egypt is to think that Morsi gave the military everything it wanted. There was this widespread perception among Egyptians, especially among the secular opposition, but also among academics, that Morsi gave the military everything. He gave them all the ministers that they wanted, the governors that they wanted, everything that they wanted in the constitution. But what I find in the book is that actually not quite. He respected those interests, but he also encroached upon a number of others. He was trying in some sense to form a pact a pacted transition like we see in Latin, what we saw in Latin America, in terms of reducing some of the military's interests, even while you try to respect others. And so in the Constitution, for instance, Morsi puts himself as the supreme commander of the armed forces, able to make security decisions. Even in the National Defense Council, military members are no longer a majority like they were in the supplementary declaration that the, the military put forth prior to Morsi's election, that their monopoly, therefore, their veto power over security power was reduced in the constitution. And then Morsi starts to make security decisions as well that the military is upset with, encouraging Egyptians to go fight in Syria, threatening Ethiopia with war over the dam they're building on the Nile. Uh, and by contrast, was too lenient in regards to other security threats, trying to call off military operations against militants in the Sinai, trying to be more lenient towards Hamas than the military wanted at the time. And so those frictions with the military over sec security policy only confirmed to the military that we've lost our monopoly, our veto power over security policy, and this is unacceptable. We can't allow these ignorant civilians to be running security affairs. The, the, that, the sacking of Tanthawi and, um, and Samyanen plays a kind of a key role in this, it seems. 
Exactly. And so this was Morsi's attempt to try to exert uh, civilian control. In a, on that same day that he sacked Tantawi and Anan, he also canceled their supplementary declaration that had stripped him mm -hmm. of being commander in chief. And so it's part of this attempt to actually uh, gain some uh, prerogatives back from the military and into uh, the civilian hands. It's not the case in that sense that Morsi gave the military everything it wanted. Mm -hmm. Also in terms of economic contracts, Morsi gave them many contracts, but not the big one, the Suez Canal Corridor development project uh, that the military wanted to run on its own, as it therefore later did post-coup. But mm -hmm. Morsi tried to relegate them into one among many partners on that project. And then you had the friction over the Brotherhood's Islamism and this more secular military that had come becoming had been coming from the secular elite. There, Morsi tried to open the ranks of the military, tried to make them more inclusive and allow Morsi's nephew, for instance, to join uh, the, the military academy to allow Islamists into the officer corps for the first time. And you can imagine the reaction. We will not mm -hmm. allow infiltration, this brotherhoodization. And so you had these series of frictions actually with the military, which I argue is normal when you have an empowered military. It's by necessity going to encroach upon their uh, political power. It's going to encroach on their composition if they've been stacked with only one faction of society, that this is normal for democratization to encroach upon their interests. But while it is normal, what is also normal are miscalculations. During a fast-paced transition, when you're trying to fix the economy, write the constitution, and now also have to deal with this negotiation with the military, miscalculations are inevitable. And what Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood thought was that they had the public support and the international support to get away with these encroachments on the military, that even if they were aggrieving the military, the military wouldn't be able to stage a coup because Morsi still had the majority of the population and critically US support, or so he thought. Both of those ended up being miscalculations. Morsi didn't realize the extent to which the military and the deep state helped to fund and coordinate the Tamarad protests. He didn't expect therefore June 30th to be that big. Likewise, in terms of the international component, Morsi thought that the U.S. was giving a consistent red light to uh, the mm -hmm. military to stage a coup. But in reality, as, as David Kirkpatrick's book has, has shown us, is that although President Obama and Ambassador Patterson were giving a clear red light, others in the administration, without Morsi knowing, were giving CC more of a yellow light, that this is your country, you have to do with it as you see fit. And so Morsi didn't understand that actually he had lost public support and the international support to be able to get away with those encroachments. And so ultimately, he pushed the military farther than the conditions allowed and led uh, to the coup in 2013. For such a conspiratorially minded movement, uh, uh, they sure didn't spot the setup. Precisely. And so, so we, we keep talking about Egypt all day, as people who study Egypt tend to do, but I want to make sure we leave enough time to talk about Tunisia, because your analysis there is really interesting, and I think really captures that kind of the path-dependent nature of these militaries in some really kind of fascinating ways. Can you talk about, let's start with that, and tell us a little bit about the military that Bourguiba made and how that ended up manifesting in, in 2011. 
So Bourguiba's strategy upon independence was to marginalize the military immediately, uh, in part because he didn't, there wasn't a war of independence, uh, there wasn't a military officer corps to inherit from the French era. He had a relatively blank slate to design the new military, and he decides to marginalize the military and instead build up a national guard, which he puts in the Ministry of Interior to counterbalance the military. And from then on, you see this kind of path dependence to the marginalization. The military is far from politics, far from material wealth, low salaries, and that starts to shape also their professionalism and their composition. Uh, because they're kept far from politics, they develop more than a political professionalism over time, coming to view that as normal for the Tunisian military. Likewise, it shapes their composition. They no longer can come from the elite families in the coast. Increasingly over time, uh, the elite doesn't find the low salaries and lack of political power attractive. And so the officer corps comes to be composed instead of ordinary Tunisians that are a bit more supportive of the revolution and share the same grievances of the population. You got, a great so, quote, you got a great quote in there from one of your interviews of, of someone saying, if you wanted to go into politics, the military isn't how you would do it. Exactly. Maybe in Egypt, you would join. Maybe in Egypt, military. you would do that. And you'll become a minister. But in Tunisia, yeah, you would go to law or business administration. Mm -hmm. That's the route to power and wealth in the country. Yeah. So in terms of recruitment as well, you avoided the more politicized power seeking individuals and you instead have more professional oriented types. So there's both that socialization dynamic as well as this recruitment dynamic that led to the more apolitical professionals uh, to, to emerge uh, in Tunisia. And that remained path dependent, even when uh, Ben Ali came to power. Mm -hmm. Ben Ali was from the military originally, and in his first couple of years did seem to try to shift the strategy. He appointed some of his colleagues in the military as ministers. He gave the military a bigger role in the National Security Council and in some political decisions. But pretty quickly, you saw how vested interests made the marginalization path dependent. That is, the police and the ruling party were upset that the military was now taking some of the ministerial positions away from them. Mm -hmm. And so in the early 1990s, the, these actors, the police, the party, try to make Ben Ali paranoid of the military. They even make up a coup plot in the military, this Barakat al-Sahel affair, where they accused the military of fomenting a coup alongside uh, Anahda, that that convinced Ben Ali that we should go back to marginalizing the military. I'm still paranoid of them, and maybe they would stage a coup against me. And so you see this path dependence in the strategy, such that by 20, uh, 2011, when the revolution hit, you have this military that's been marginalized, politically and materially, uh, is relatively apolitical and far from politics, and uh, is composed of, for the most part, ordinary Tunisians from the interior regions, even if at the very top ranks, they made sure to appoint officers from the coast uh, to the top generals. Now, in your story about 2000, 2010, 2011, you have a you, you, you get the, this kind of uh, stance of saying every what everybody believes is wrong. And uh, here's what really happened. So tell us what do people get wrong and why do you think they're wrong? So this is probably the most surprising part of my research. I didn't because I had believed the myth that mm -hmm. everyone 
to this day believes, which is that Ben Ali, after weeks of protests, asked the military to fire on the protests. And the head of the army, General Rashid Ammar, said, no, I refuse to fire. And that's why Ben Ali fled the country. But it actually pretty quickly emerged that this was just a myth. In the months after the revolution, uh, there was a military trial of Ali Sariati for allegedly conspiring against uh, the president. And in that trial, you had almost 40 regime officials testify as to what actually happened in the revolution. And some very smart Tunisian journalists uh, decided to compile all those testimonies to piece together what actually happened in the revolution. And so their book uh, by Abdulaziz Belkhoja and Tariq Sheikhru, who was, was one of the first to actually reveal what actually happened, mm -hmm. uh, which is that in Rashid Ahmad's testimony, uh, to the military court, he actually says, this is a false rumor. I was never asked to fire on protesters, and thus I never refused to fire on protesters. And then when you try to go back to see where did this rumor emerge, you find some articles from January 12th, January 11th, prior to mm -hmm. uh, the revolution succeeding, uh, in French and Arabic only, not yet in English, that show that According to opposition sources, uh, Rashid Ahmad refused to fire and was therefore fired and replaced by Ahmed Shabir. And we couldn't get official confirmation of this. And so, dis but despite those qualifications that it's only from opposition forces, uh, there's no confirmation, it becomes fact upon after the revolution. Everybody believes Rashid Ahmad was the man who said no, was the hero of the revolution, etc. And the military and then, has every interest in people believing that at that point. Precisely. It's good for Rashid Ammar to keep that narrative flowing, even if when he's at the military court and has to testify under oath, he says, actually, this was a false rumor I was ever asked to fire. And a few months later, in summer of 2011, a blogger comes out and says, this was actually a disinformation campaign that I put forth. Yassine Ayadi, this, who would later become a member of parliament, but a cyber activist during the revolution, says that I invented this rumor. And it's hard to know if it was him or any other number of these cyber activists who were working at the time. Uh, but what's clear was that this never actually happened, uh, that it was a rumor according the spread from opposition circles, right. and then was uh, put it in the media. France 24, Jeune Afrique, and others published this during the revolution, during the protests, uh, that Rashid Ahmad had said no. And so what I find in the book is that although it never happened, it actually had real-world consequences nonetheless. Right. The rumor, because it got publicized and because everybody believed it, it seemed credible that the military would say no, given what we know about the military, that they were and neglected. And they were actually firing at people. And exactly. And that they're seeing that even though the military deployed, even though Rashid Ahmad said yes to every order he got and deployed the military to defend institutions, mm -hmm. he was never asked to fire on protesters, but he was asked to defend institutions, including notably to defend police stations and RCD party offices. Uh, Ali Sariati, the head of the presidential guard, told me that those were part of the in institutions that the military was asked to protect and that Rashid Ahmad said yes to, the, uh, the soldiers that were actually on the ground 
didn't really defend those institutions. They let the protesters destroy the police stations and the RCD party offices rather than use force to defend them because the soldiers are ordinary Tunisians, because the military had been neglected. And so even though Rashid Ahmad never said no, you did see these defections among the lower levels. And that led further credence to this rumor that actually Rashid Ahmad said no. And so because everyone believed it, it led them to be emboldened to protest, thinking the military is on our side in those final days. And what I find is that it also led to cracks and defections within the police that they started to believe the rumor too. So Samir Tarhuni, the one who mutinied on the final day and arrested the Trebelsis at the airport, he told me that actually the lower ranks of the police started to believe the rumor too. And they were giving up in the final days, thinking that the military is not gonna back them up. And so he decides, given all of this, given the kind of chaos and disillusionment happening within the regime, he decides on that final day to mutiny uh, in the hopes of preserving the police moving forward. If we arrest the Trebelsis and show that we're on the side of the people, maybe we will at least survive the revolution, even if, of course, the Trebelsis would not. And so, so that's the real story of the revolution. Yeah. And then so and then taking a step back from the details, then you argue that the military didn't defect. It was what you call it was shirking. Yeah, the high levels of the military, Rashid Ahmad, these officers who were chosen based on their loyalty coming from these elite coastal families, they obeyed every order they were given to deploy the military, to defend even police stations and RCD offices. But the lower officers and the soldiers who are actually stationed on the ground, they don't want to defend the regime. They are the ones that feel this discrimination in promotions, that they're coming from the interior regions but can never become general. They are the ones feeling the neglect and marginalization. And they are the ones, the ordinary Tunisians, that are sympathizing with the demands of the protesters. And so the actual lower levels stationed on the ground start to shirk, not actually fulfill this duty of protecting police stations right. and RCD offices, even though at the high level, Rashid Ahmad never actually said no. But because of these legacies of having marginalized the military, of having ordinary Tunisians stack the military or compose the military, you had, therefore, a military that was unwilling to actually use force to defend uh, Ben Ali. Last question then, just to finish out this story then, how does your theory help explain why the military went along with uh, Kais Saeed's uh, autogolpe? It stems from the same marginalization. You had this military that had been neglected, that had become relatively apolitical, and that was composed of relatively ordinary Tunisians. That helped during the transition. They didn't stage a coup in 2013, despite all the calls for them to stage a coup, because they were gaining from the transition, having been so neglected under Ben Ali, now things were starting to improve for them. They were relatively apolitical, didn't view a coup as their appropriate role, and they were ordinary Tunisians that had identified with the revolution. And so they ignored the calls for a coup in 2013. But paradoxically, they then abandoned democracy in 2021 when the civilian commander in chief, the president asked them to close the parliament. And I argue it's the same three factors that led them to do that. 
Their corporate interests, first of all, had been so neglected under dictatorship, now things were starting to improve, and they were improving even further under Kais Syed. Kais Syed appoints the first military uh, doctors as Minister of Health, uh, first ministerial positions in 30 years, tasks the military with leading the response to COVID, improving the military's image among the population. He also uh, promotes all of the top generals to the equivalent of a two-star general, which was unprecedented unprecedented in Tunisia to have all five top mm -hmm. generals become two stars prior to the takeover. So things were going well for the Tunisian military under Kais Syed. So corporate interest was one reason they obeyed. But the second was this apolitical professionalism that they had developed under dictatorship and that led them not to stage a coup themselves in 2013, led them actually to obey the orders in 2021. Very this idea that we should obey civilian control, we should defer to the civilian commander in chief. Uh, we as military officers don't feel qualified to say that he, uh, this order is unconstitutional. He after all is the constitutional law professor. Who are we to say it's wrong? And so they decided out of this culture of deferring to the president to say, okay, we'll obey these orders and following orders is the less political thing to do. If we're trying to be apolitical professionals, we should just follow the orders. And so the professionalism paradoxically led them also to obey in 2021. And then the final explanation is about their composition, that they're coming from ordinary Tunisians, from the relatively neglected interior regions, ordinary Tunisians that had come to embrace the populist rhetoric of the president that viewed the elite as the problem. These ordinary Tunisians who viewed the elite and the parties and the businessmen as corrupt, they had bought into Kais Syed's rhetoric of uh, we need to clean up the system. Right. And so likewise, their composition coming from these same families led them, just like the majority of Tunisians, to say this is the right path for the country. Uh, and so all of those factors then, their professionalism, their composition, their corporate interests, led them to obey in 2021 and end democracy, even if those same factors had led them to support democracy initially and avoid uh, staging a coup in 2013. Oh, that's fascinating. Hey, thank you so much. We've been speaking with uh, Sharon Gruel about his book, Soldiers of Democracy, Oxford University Press. Um, thanks for listening to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. Da, da, da.